Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm Ray Hardman, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, an in-depth look at surveillance and privacy. Edward Snowden's historic leak of thousands of NSA classified documents in 2013 revealed the many ways that government and other entities can peer into our daily lives. What are those methods, and what are people's attitudes towards surveillance in a post-Snowden America? Plus, we'll visit an art exhibit in Hartford that explores surveillance and privacy. Joining me in the studio is Kenneth Gray. He's a lecturer in the University of New Haven's Criminal Justice Department. He's a retired FBI special agent. Good morning, Kenneth. Thanks for joining me. Good morning, Ray, and I look forward to this. And on the phone, Emily Dreyfus, national affairs writer at Wired Magazine. Hi, Emily. Hi. Thanks for having me, Ray. And we want you to join the conversation. Do you worry about corporate and government surveillance infringing upon your privacy rights? Why or why not? Are you willing to trade some privacy for better security? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at wnpr.org, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So good morning, guys. And uh, Emily, I want to start with you. Um, Looking back, what role did Snowden's NSA revelations play in raising awareness about what the government is doing behind the scenes um, in terms of government surveillance? Well, it was it was earth shaking, I think, uh, is one way to put it. Um, I don't think people were aware really much at all that their digital correspondence, who they were speaking to, the, 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 the data that they were transmitting out into the world every time they made a phone call or sent an email. I don't think anyone, the, the majority of the public, had any sense that the government was tapping into that, had access to it, or could be looking at it. And what Snowden revealed was that so much of that data can be caught up by the government. Um, accidentally or targetedly. Um, uh, one of the things that I think Snowden brought to light that that made people the most upset and aware was the revelation that you didn't need to be the target yourself to have your information caught up in the surveillance gathering. And, and you know, it, it has been a sea change in awareness for people. Now, whether or not people change their habits, is another question. Um, But people are certainly aware of a whole world of surveillance and spying that they weren't before. Yeah. Ken, I want you to join us here. Uh, Tell me uh, about your experience in the FBI. Okay. Well, uh, surveillance is a very useful tool to law enforcement. So let me first uh, address uh, the, the PRISM program, the NSA PRISM program. NSA was, uh, this is in the wake of 9-11, so the USA Patriot Act that was passed was to provide tools to law enforcement to address counterterrorism issues, to try to counter the activity of al-Qaeda. So the NSA, the National Security Administration, uh, obtained the ability to go to the big carriers and to obtain the 
who contacts who information. That is, who makes a phone call to who. Not the content of the conversations themselves, but instead just the, the call records as to who was contacting who. With the idea that you could data mine that, and if you had a target telephone number, then you could go and find who that target telephone number was in contact with the idea of identifying al-Qaeda cell members here in the United States. So the concept was a, a very, very good concept. Of course, uh, the, the, uh, the, the content itself was protected. You, the NSA was not receiving the content of, that is, what was being said during the conversations, just simply who was uh, contacting who. And this uh, useful program helps identify who the bad guys are here. Right. And that was part of the Patriot Act, which was signed off by Congress, uh, signed by uh, President Bush very quickly after uh, 9-11. Um, but Emily, did, uh, did Snowden's leaks reveal something a little bit more? Um, I, I mean, I think Snowden's leaks, we, we, we know about prison because of Snowden. Um, that's true. Uh, we also know how much the United States was spying on foreign governments. One of the biggest uh, things to come out of the Snowden leaks was the change in the relationship with European leaders. You know, you'll recall the fallout of um, the revelation that the United States had been spying on Angela Merkel. Right. And other uh, European leaders, and 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 since then, laws in Europe have actually changed in response to the Snowden revelations. Perhaps, arguably, more than laws in the United States have changed. Um, we have, in the years since Snowden revealed what he did, passed the USA Freedom Act, which, in some ways, limits NSA collection methods, uh, which is a good thing. What it means, what what USA Freedom Act means is that now in order to get some of that fire hose data, the to and the from of people talking to each other on email or on text message, people have to go, the government has to go to a court, the FISA court, ask for a warrant, and then take that to the tech companies themselves who have the data and give it to the government rather than having access to it directly. Ken, let's go a little broader here. Uh, I'm kind of curious um, besides what we know about from the from the Snowden leaks, in what ways can can we be tracked not only by the federal government, by but by local government and state government? In what ways can can government spy on us? So we live in a surveillance nation. There are cameras absolutely everywhere. Uh, on average, a, a 2015 uh, study uh, identified that on average you are uh, captured on video with the surveillance camera about 75 times a day. So uh, that in itself is uh, very interesting to show that just how pervasive the the surveillance aspect is of of this country. However, most of those cameras are not owned by the government. Most of those cameras are owned by stores, by businesses, by homes. Uh, But there are some that are owned by the government. Uh, For instance, the city of New Haven has cameras installed out on the streets in the downtown area with the idea of trying to stop crime. Of course, if those cameras are not being monitored, if uh, the cameras are simply being uh, captured uh, and the images being stored on a hard drive, it will help solve crimes, but it would not necessarily stop a crime from occurring. So cameras are one thing. And again, most of them are owned by commercial entities, not the government itself. 
Uh, license plate readers. Police cars now, most local police departments have uh, license plate readers, so police cars drive around. They have cameras that are mounted on the back trunks as the uh, police cars are driving down the streets. Uh, those cameras are capturing plates. Those plates are being digitized and being run against databases, trying to identify stolen cars. Of course, you could put specific tags in there and try to locate specific individuals that way. So that's another thing that is owned by the government, the local government, but the government to try to use for surveillance. Uh, Every time you use your ATM machine, every time you use your bank card, you are leaving behind a digital record, Mm. another way to track you. Every time you use your cell phone or your telephone, you're leaving behind a record. All those can be used to put together the entire package of the person. So here's the thing is that you, if you have all these different databases out there and you start adding them all together, then you can build up a total picture of the person uh, and watch them as they move about in their day-to-day uh, uh, life. And so uh, things that are normally perfectly acceptable to collect, things like a picture of a person standing out on the street, you're out there where the entire public can see you. But if you start being able to put all these different pieces together, it starts building up a big picture of the person. Yeah. This is Where We Live. We are talking about surveillance and privacy. I'm joined by Kenneth Gray. He's a lecturer in the University of New Haven's Criminal Justice Department. He's also a retired FBI special agent. And joining us by phone is Emily Dreyfus. She's the national affairs writer at Wired. Um, Emily, uh, there is inadvertent surveillance like uh, Ken just described, but then there's also intent surveillance. Um, Tell us about the difference, and um, is the government allowed to find out more about us without having to go to a judge? Well, yes. So the way the FISA court works is um, you have to get a warrant for a targeted individual that you are interested in. How? And so let's talk about, we can use a, a current example. President Trump, a couple of months ago, made the allegation on Twitter that President Obama had tapped the phones at Trump Tower. Now, I think that's an illustrative example because that's not how it works. And if we, if we talk about it, we can understand how it does work. Um, for Trump Tower to be tapped, What would need to happen is that a court, someone in the government, would have to go to the FISA court and say, we want to get a warrant to hear what's going on in this building because of an interest in a foreign party, somebody who is abroad. Now, there there are reports that 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 is the case, but what we don't know from that is whether or not that tap is actually to, uh, to do with Trump or if it's to do with the 58 other people in that building. Um, but what is for certain is that it, the president is never the one who would order that. It is, it is someone in the government, a prosecutor, or a, um, the FBI or the NSA going to the FISA court and saying, we need access to this. Now, so if you're going to target someone in particular, you have to have a warrant. But once you have that, you can have accidental or incidental collection of other people's information because let's say the person that you're targeting, you now have a tap on their phone and someone from America calls them. You have now collected information and surveilled that person who was not actually your target, but you have information about them. And and I think that that is fairly common and, and um, information 
is learned that way. I, I'm sure that, that your your guest in, in the studio can speak to that um, perhaps more than I can as a former law enforcement official. Yeah, Ken. So normally under a FISA collection, U.S. persons that are not the subject of the investigation, their identity is blanked out. It's removed from the, the transcript of the communication. Uh, it's only by requesting for the revealing of that identity do you actually get to know who the other U.S. persons are that are inadvertently captured in the uh, FISA surveillance. The, uh, the FISA Act uh, is a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It was put in place for both counterintelligence purposes and for counterterrorism purposes. So the, the idea is that if you have a person who has been identified as the subject of a terrorist investigation, you can go before a court and you can request a warrant to be able to intercept their telephone calls, just like you can with Title III for a, a person who is the subject of a criminal investigation. You have to say uh, to explain why you're using this very intrusive technique is that you can't obtain that information with other techniques, yeah. that, that you've exhausted those other techniques and you need to go to this type of intrusive type technique. But it is uh, on a court order with the review of the FISA court. Yeah. Emily Dreyfus, uh, four years after the uh, NSA leaks from Edward Snowden, what is uh, the public's attitude about being being surveilled? Um, you know, I think pretty complacent would be my overall guess. Uh, and, and in some ways, that's because a lot of us have this feeling that, well, we're not doing anything wrong. And and. And so what does it matter? And additionally, it's incredibly difficult, as we've been discussing, to avoid this kind of surveillance. So if you were someone who was saying, I want to have ultimate privacy, I do not want the government looking into my electronic communications or knowing my whereabouts when I go out into the world, well, then that would mean you need to not use a cell phone. Because if you have a cell phone throughout the city, you will be you will be able to be tracked. It will mean you definitely need to not shop online and use the major internet service providers. You're going to have to go into a fully encrypted environment where you use you know a VPN or a Tor browser. And these things are available, and they're incredibly useful to people who are in oppressive regimes and need to you know have a way to protect themselves, uh, or people who are whistleblowers, but for regular everyday people in America who don't feel like they are in any way at risk because they're not doing anything wrong, it's incredibly inconvenient. And so in 2017, we're at this interesting inflection point where we have the an ultimate level of awareness about how much we're being surveilled, and not just by the government, but by advertisers and the very tech companies that we depend on who are also tracking us around the internet and the real world, and probably just as much, if not more, than the government is. Um, we have this awareness, but we also have this expectation of convenience. And so I think a lot of us talk a big talk, but don't actually make any changes in our lives. There seems to be a trade-off, um, you know, personal privacy, giving up a little bit of personal privacy for more security. Does uh, those factors change when something like a high-profile terrorist uh, incident occurs? Are people more willing at that point to, to give up a little bit more personal privacy if they feel like uh, security would prevent uh, another type of terrorist attack? You know, um, I 
I don't think that people think of it that causally. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking today when there was just an enormous terrorist attack in Manchester last night and in England, and when we're just getting the details now. But I, I don't think people put it together as as um, as relatedly as that. And and we can look to a few years ago when there was a terrorist attack in San Bernardino, California, and. 14 people were killed, and the person who did it claimed to have been inspired by ISIS. And the government, this was, you know, James Comey's big kind of coming out onto the national stage when he was FBI director. He sued Apple, you may remember, in order to get access to uh, Farouk, the, the shooter's iPhone, because he wanted to see if there was anything on there that would give any more details about who had planned the attack and who was responsible for the attack. Now, doing so was impossible because after Snowden's revelations, Apple, Facebook, Google, and a lot of the other tech companies uh, responded to the revelation that they had been collaborating with the government to, to spy on citizens by making stronger protections for privacy. And one of those protections was in the iPhone, right. iOS, is, is encrypted by default, which means that what was on that phone was not accessible by Apple. Um, and so, you know, when James Comey asked Apple to let him in, they, they, they said, we can't. <laughs> and what Comey sued for was for Apple to write a code that would undermine the privacy protections of its entire operating system in order to get into that one phone. Now, to answer your question, would the public in response to a terrorist attack be willing to make more privacy trade-offs? I think that that case is very illustrative because the public was not overwhelmingly on the side of the FBI. Um, the, the, the public now is, a, is educated enough to understand that if you undermine encryption in order to help the good guys, you also accidentally and potentially help the bad guys. And so it, it wasn't a simple, yes, just give the government what they need, even though it is a very complex question of trade-off. But, right. but no, I think, I think people value their privacy and, and, um, and individual incidents don't change their opinion too much. This is Where We Live. I'm Ray Hardman filling in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about surveillance and privacy. Coming up in the next segment, we'll be joined by Dylan Reisman of the Princeton Web Transparency and Accountability Project, and we'll talk about corporate surveillance and how the loss of privacy affects our democracy. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wnpr.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Don't go away. This is where we live. I'm Ray Hardman, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about mass surveillance post-Edward Snowden. Coming up, we'll visit an art exhibit at Real Artways in Hartford called Nothing to Hide that looks at surveillance and privacy. Joining me in the studio is Kenneth Gray. He's a lecturer in the University of New Haven's Criminal Justice Department. He's also a retired FBI special agent. And joining us by phone now is Dylan Reisman, independent research engineer collaborating with the Princeton Web Transparency and Accountability, Pro Accountability Project, also known as WebTap. And you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at wnpr.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter 
at where we live. Are you willing to trade some privacy for better security? Uh, Dylan, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for having me. Tell us about the Princeton Web Transparency and Accountability Accountability Project. I learned how to say that. <laughs> um, so at the at WebTap, what we're really trying to do is measure the many ways in which companies on the web uh, track and measure what you do. Uh, so oftentimes this is framed as a matter of marketing or advertising. There are hundreds of companies that are in the business of figuring out who you are, what your interests are, so that people can sell you better products. Um, but really there is a lot of sort of bad externalities to uh, all this rampant tracking. So our work at WebTab is really to try and shine a light on what those trackers are doing and the sort of technologies they're using to track users on the web. Well, that, um, and also try to start to get at how that data that they collect might be used or abused uh, in ways that you might not expect. So that brings me to my next question. I mean, it, can you explain how data mining companies track us online, and, and what are they ultimately doing with that information? Uh, so that's a really good question that people on the outside are still trying to figure out in a lot of ways. That's part of what we're doing. Um, but the basic mechanism through which people track you is you might be familiar with when you're on a web browser or you're on your phone, uh, there are these things called cookies. Cookies are just little IDs that follow you around wherever you go on the web. That's the basic mechanism through which companies track you. But they're also a lot more sort of harder to see and actually harder to block ways they track you. There is this concept called browser fingerprinting or device fingerprinting through which a company on a website and it's not necessarily the, web, uh, the first party you're visiting, but a third party. So if you visit NPR.org, it's not NPR, but it's uh, some ad company you have never heard of. They can take a fingerprint, a unique fingerprint of your device that you cannot change, just like your own fingerprint, and they can use that to track you. So those are sort of the weird ways in which that data can be collected. And then this data is sold and resold all over the place in order to, you know, give different analytics companies or advertising companies a leg up on trying to target you with ads that they think will be high value to advertisers. I think we've all had the experience of looking on, say, Amazon for something. Recently, I was looking for a camping tent, and then all of a sudden, everywhere, I, every page I went to, there was a little ad about uh, camping tents. Uh, it drove me crazy. Um, but is that just, yes. that's not the worst of it. I, I'm, I'm taking it. No. So that's the thing is that I think as people are slowly becoming more aware of this sort of thing, it still often only comes into people's minds when they think of advertising. And what you described is called retargeting. And those are really high values. So companies love it if they know that you've been looking for a camping tent. But the sort of what this sort of portends is actually can be a lot worse. So that data then as more and more decision-making is made through the use of algorithms and machine learning, just systems that are not human-supervised but take in data from the real world to make decisions, that data that's collected about you can be used to make decisions like, do you deserve a mortgage? Uh, if you are ever sentenced to a crime, what's the risk of you recommitting a crime? And this sort of thing is already happening to some people. Uh, minority communities are disproportionately affected by this sort of thing today already. But in the future, it will only become more and more common. And uh, the problem really is that because this tracking happens so invisibly and there's such this information asymmetry between people and the companies that do this, people don't really know enough to sort of fight back or you know, say, hey, we need some accountability in the system. So 
that's the problem is that as big data becomes more prevalent and more widely used, this data that's being collected about us today could be abused in ways we can't even anticipate in the future. Dylan, I want to go to an article that you and a colleague from WebTap wrote uh, in The Atlantic called The Thinning Line Between Commercial and Government Surveillance, uh, a really eye-opening article. And one of the things you write in there is that the algorithms that kind of predetermine what we might be interested in, what our interests might be, uh, also can play... uh, a more dangerous role, and it can kind of lean on some of our own prejudices and make us even, I guess, worse would be the word for it. Yeah, so this this is a part of that sort of future potential for harm that we were ta- that I was just talking about. Um, so there are some really interesting examples of this. I already kind of mentioned this. There's really interesting work coming out of ProPublica, and we've dove into this ourselves a little bit um, about a uh, about criminal uh, risk uh, risk scoring for sentencing. There are jurisdictions in which judges use software developed by a private company uh, to sort of give uh, people who are being sentenced a risk score. It's not supposed to literally be their sentence, like a a determination of, oh, five to 20 years, but it's supposed to be sort of a, what is the likelihood that this person will recommit? And what this research found was that based on the color of your skin, you would get a different risk score, even if every other factor were the same. And that's because of bias in the data, existing data, bias in our uh, in how sentencing has happened to date, that's being used to feed an algorithm that's then just reproducing the bias. There's kind of this sense that a computer is this impartial, pure thing, and that we're getting the humans out of it, but really it's sort of garbage in, garbage out. The data has this bias, so the data you get out of it also has a bias. And this is something that needs to be better understood because it's going to impact people in so many different ways. You know, in the field of healthcare, if you have some sort of pre-existing condition, even if there's a rule against sort of discriminating on the basis of pre-existing condition, if that's something that can be predicted from the data and it's happening in an algorithm that has no sort of accountability or transparency, that bias or that that discriminatory effect can still carry through in the result of the decision-making algorithm. Yeah. Ken Gray, I want you to get involved here. Sure. Um, So uh, judges themselves do not uh, operate this type of software. They go to pretrial services who gives a package to the judge assessing the risk of the person uh, committing another crime. Uh, What is their risk of recidivism? Uh, and so uh, a lot of th- different things go into that determination of the risk. I, I, I'm not familiar with this uh, process, this program uh, uh, that is being discussed, but, uh, but the pretrial services looks at many different factors to try to figure out the risk of a person recommitting a crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. I want to go back to the, uh, the article in The Atlantic, the thinning line between commercial and government surveillance. Uh, Dylan, you say the erosion of privacy on the Internet is a huge issue, and it could affect how society and our own democracy works. Can you give some examples there? I, yeah, uh, absolutely. So I think that this is something that people maybe become more aware of actually now, um, after the election and in the past year especially, um, that there's this sort of There are so many effects that can happen. So one that people talk about is this idea of the filter bubble, um, that because these algorithms and tracking learn so much about us and they learn what we like, they can target us with the things that we like. And this includes the news stories we see. 
Um, so this sort of kind of can create an echo chamber in which out, uh, news outlets or, as people say, fake news outlets, though I won't comment on that, um, they, they can actually better target the users who will, that, uh, that will be most receptive to them with the news stories they want to see, and that this rewards more extremist news outlets to publish misinformation or disinformation, rather, purposely sort of uh, mislead the public. Um, and that's one way in which technology actually can have a really bad effect, I think, as we've been seeing in the past years, that no one really can agree on the basic facts of stories anymore. Um, another way in which, you know, democracy can be hurt by this is that surveillance and pri uh, that privacy actually is essential as a principle to civil liberties. There's a lot of research out there that shows that when people don't feel may, may uh, feel to be surveilled in some way or watched in some way, they'll mod uh, modulate their behavior. And that means that any sort of political agitation or political dissent uh, is disincentivized in a world where there's massive surveillance because people do not want to speak out or people, you know, have that little sort of things talking in their head saying, you know what, I shouldn't write this. I shouldn't search this. Right. I don't know how it's going to come back to harm me. Right. Uh, Dylan, real quickly, we're running out of time. From a technology standpoint, is privacy protection online a thing of the past? Can we be secure? There are tools and things people can do. Part of WebTap's uh, goal is really to try to uh, limit is try is to try to shine a light on this and we found that having sort of public press on the abuses of tracking online has had an effect um it's not all is not lost privacy I, I, I never give up on privacy it's the sort of thing where there are a lot of people working on this problem um and it's just we need to find better ways of you know funding news uh news publishing journalism um right. but it is something that I have not given up hope on. I think that there are a lot of tools that people can use. All right, really Dylan, help. thanks so much. Coming up in the next segment, we'll take a trip to Hartford's Real Art Ways to see their latest exhibit that looks at issues of privacy and surveillance in the 21st century. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email wherewelive at wnpr.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at wherewelive. Don't go away. This is Where We Live. I'm Ray Hartman, in for Lucy Nowpathanchel. Privacy and surveillance take center stage in an exhibition at Hartford's Real Artways. Nothing to Hide, Art, Surveillance, and Privacy is now on view to the public through June 19th. In just a moment, we'll take a tour of the exhibit. But first, we're joined by Edward Schenken. He's Associate Professor and Director of Digital Arts and New Media at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He's also co-curator of Nothing to Hide. Edward Schenken, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk about uh, the vision behind Nothing to Hide. Well, the title of the exhibition comes from an essay by Daniel Solove called Nothing to Hide. So we wanted to ask that question in an exhibition context and see how artists respond to issues of surveillance and privacy. Nothing to Hide is fairly provocative because it's an attitude that a lot of people uh, express and they say, well, the government can look uh, at my what I'm doing privately as much as they want because I have nothing to hide. But there's really more to it than that. In fact, the English government used to have an advertising slogan, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. But that whole issue of if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, is a specious argument, I believe. 
the issue of privacy is something that is core to the United States uh, legal system. And in the 19th century, Justices Warren and Brandeis stated that privacy is simply the right to be left alone. It's not about hiding secrets. Edward, how did surveillance become an expression uh, of art? How did surveillance become not only in this exhibit a subject, but also a medium? Are there artists out there that are really focused on this? There are many artists whose work is really focused on surveillance. Julian Oliver is one example, Michelle Tehran also, Rafael Lozano-Hemmer, Lynn Hirschman. There's a long tradition of this in contemporary art practice from Vito Acconci's following uh, performance of the 60s to Sophie Call's work on surveillance, where she had a detective hired who followed her around Paris, but she was actually surveying on him without him knowing it. So, Edward, in 2013, Edward Snowden uh, leaked you know, thousands of NSA documents that outlined uh, some government surveillance programs. Did you see an uptick in art a- after that moment? I mean, was Snowden really a catalyst for creativity? There were a number of issues that catalyzed creativity in the arts around the issue of surveillance. Uh, Edward Snowden was one but also uh, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and uh, the whistleblowing of Chelsea Manning. So I can identify works of art that really address those individuals. For example, Adam Harvey created a work in which your cell phone connects to a Wi-Fi system, and whenever you send a message or you make a call, it appears as though you are making sending that message or making that call from the Ecuadorian embassy in London, as though you are Julian Assange or with Julian Assange. Interesting. Uh, Edward, finally, tell me about the biggest takeaway for you uh, from curating Nothing to Hide. There have not been many exhibitions on the theme of surveillance. So for me, to be a curator and have the opportunity to select specific works that I think are important artistic examinations of this theme created the, the chance to see those works together, to see how they resonate with each other, the way in which they inform each other and reinforce and expand the conversation. Hey, Edward Shankin, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for your interest in Nothing to Hide. Edward Shankin is Associate Professor and Director of Digital Arts and New Media at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He's also co-curator of the Real Artways exhibition, Nothing to Hide, Art, Surveillance, and Privacy. I took a tour of the Hartford exhibit with Real Artways Executive Director Will K. Wilkins. We started in the main gallery, where there was a circular installation featuring three large screens. On those screens were images of colorful silhouettes walking about. In the center, ceramic bowls lined with silver looked like they were attached to an electronic device. Here's Wilkins explaining. This is a project called Reaction Bubble. It's a collaborative project between the artist team Lovid, who create their own videos and interactive technology, the ceramics artist, Matthew Towers, who works with ceramics in part because of its historical associations as it's an ancient art form. And Lovit, in this case, links in interactive uh, technology to these ceramics. And then the unseen collaborator in this is choreographer Deborah Goff, who, with her dancers, has come in and interacted with the work 
two different times, and there's one more time in the third weekend in June where they'll be coming in again. This project is really based on how people interact with each other and that that interaction is influenced by their physical proximity to each other and that that proximity is interpreted varyingly through different cultures and also it makes a huge difference how close people are. So this space is based on this anthropological field of study called proxemics which includes the notion of public space, social space, and personal intimate space. And so this is meant with these kind of concentric circles to represent those different ways that we as people interact and the ways that we understand our interaction in part based on how, what the relationship our bodies have to each other. So different, different layers, if you will. Layers, different, I think concentric circles is yes. a good way to think of it. Uh, you know, the, the way you would interact with another human being in an intimate way is very different than you would act with somebody in a more formal, say, a business or an educational setting, which is very different than you would act in a, a, a public event on a sidewalk or at a sporting event. And a lot of these interactions are things that we take for granted, that we understand intuitively or innately. And I think what this is trying to, to do is manifest some of those relationships and bring them to the front of our mind. And it's using technology and ancient forms of ceramics and physical movement to do that. You, you have uh, sidewalks here uh, that look like they're uh, hooked up is something? They're wired in we, some way? There are, Lovid and Matt Towers have collaborated. Matt created these sidewalks. People came here to Real Artways a couple of years ago and walked in circles and so you'll see those footprints and you'll see actually there was a dog here that night there was, so there were some dog prints in here too. You know and it's interesting you look at this evidence of human movement. Matt Towers told a wonderful story about being in an archaeological dig I believe it was in Israel, where he came across some shards of ceramics that were ancient, and in one of them he saw the thumbprint of the person who had made these ceramics. And I think that that sense of the relative permanence in human scale of the, the ability to print into something that then becomes fired and becomes more permanent is part of what's going on with this sidewalk, even as the, the interaction that people have is very ephemeral. This all was, all these prints were created on one night. There is something that's kind of permanent about them as well. Will, as we walk, um, the image is changing. We're seeing these kind of snake-like, very colorful things kind of coming through and uh, uh, interacting with the, uh, with the people walking away, the silhouettes. Those snake-like images are triggered. At, even as we walk, Ray, we're, we're affecting this light beam, which is then triggering those shapes, which are very different and very non-human shapes to kind of have their own physical relationship with the images that show up on screen. I think that the, the kind of poetic interpretation of that is that even as we're moving through space, we're impacting the way that we relate to each other in terms of 
our own personal relations, our, our physical distance, our proximity to each other. Let's talk about, uh, about this work. Yeah. So we'll, what we see here on, on this huge uh, side of the wall are seven different pillars, different colors, um, with a design that when you get up close, you realize are little tiny pictures, and a lot of them, really a deluge of, of images. Tell us about this piece. Hassan Alahi is the artist who created A Thousand Little Brothers. He did this as something, as a response to something that happened in his own life. He travels a lot for work. He lives here in the United States. And he had been detained, at his re-entry into the United States, multiple times. And he went to the FBI and he said, what can I do? I travel a lot. I'm an artist. What can I do so that this doesn't happen to me every time? And the FBI said, well, let us know where you're going. Let us know what you're up to. So Hassan took that idea and went full throttle to do that. He took his cell phone and took photos of what he was doing every day, wherever he was for years, and created just a, uh, you know, images of food, images of bathrooms, images of, you know, physical spaces in public, and gave so much information that it became almost impossible for any coherent narrative to be made out of that. So I think what we have here is something, you know, describing it, I think, doesn't quite capture the humor in it. Because as you look at it, they're very beautiful, very striking, these, these pillars. And then as you get closer, you look at it, and there's a familiarity to these images. And then when you actually see what's in there, it's kind of funny. And Hassan's point with this is that if, while the surveillance is collecting information, there's such a thing as too much information. Yeah. And you can be overloaded with it. It relates to some of the other work in this show in that it's self-surveillance, but it's self-surveillance taken to a kind of an absurd extreme and then presented in public. It really kind of takes uh, this attitude of well, I don't care if people spy on me, I have nothing to hide. It takes it to a completely different, whole new level. One of the things people don't realize about contemporary art is contemporary art can be really funny. And I think <laughs> here, you know, we're serious in terms of presenting this exhibition about surveillance, but you know, when you mention Nothing to Hide as a title, that's a serious title referencing the fact that so many people feel like, hey, what's the problem with surveillance? I've got nothing to hide. And I think what, what Hassan is doing with this is actually saying, you know what, I really have nothing to hide, <laughs> and I'm going to show you just how much I don't have to hide. Right, right. Tell us about the colors. Sure. These are colors taken from the emergency broadcasting system. So late at night, you might find these colors appearing on your television. So okay. I think at the same time, even as humor is embedded in this piece, there also is a sense of warning you know, and, 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 and a message to people that you know, it is not uh, perhaps conducive to democracy when we have you know, uh, you know, uncontrolled surveillance going on. We should be aware of the impact of surveillance and we as individuals have a role to play both in terms of being aware and, and then responding to the government because this is very much a result of Hassan engaging with the government uh, around his concern for his own ability to travel freely across borders. Mm -hmm.
Let's talk about the title of this work, A Thousand Little Brothers. That's got to be an Orwellian reference, I would imagine. Absolutely, a reference to Orwell's famous novel of 1984 and Big Brother, the overarching surveiller of the society. And in this, the, the reference, I think, is multi-layered in that Hassan Olahi, the artist, is saying, you know, we are all actually surveilling ourselves by, all, by the pictures that we're taking that have time stamps and location stamps on them. We are acting as little brothers in that we're surveilling these parts of our own life. So it's, it, it, it's both referencing that and also kind of pointing at the, at the absurdity of it. So definitely that idea of, of surveillance as something that you know, can be carried out by the government, it can be carried out by ourselves, and there's both a threat to it, but there's also a sense of absurdity to it. So right now what, what we see is uh, an image of um, a man, it looks like, uh, walking, and his face is completely um, shadowed, it's completely blurred. Uh, the, name, the title of this piece is Street Ghost. Tell us about this. Paolo Sirio is an artist who has done a number of different projects that look at the sort of kind of surveillance that happens online. So Street Ghosts is a, an ongoing thing that he's done in several major cities around the world as a public art project. What he does is simple in a way, but I think it's very rich in, when you think about it. Google Street Views has taken photos throughout the world of different addresses and you know you can look and you can find an image from Google Street Views of a particular address. What we did with in collaborating with Paolo was to look through Google Street View images of downtown Hartford and pick out the images that had captured pedestrians. Typically when these images are captured on Google Street Views the facial features are blurred, so you can't necessarily identify the person from that, but the images are there nonetheless. So what Paolo does is he takes the images and then copies them onto vinyl or onto paper and then wheat pastes them onto the buildings that they were originally taken in front of. Mm. So what we did is we took seven of these images from different locations right in the downtown Hartford area and wheat pasted them onto buildings. They're actually quite striking when you walk through the downtown and you come upon them because they have this, this presence about them even as the, a very strong visceral physical presence even as the identification of it is quite blurred. So they're called street ghosts and I think one of the things Paolo is trying to point out to us is how just walking on a public street you can be surveilled and not necessarily be aware of it. I was thinking about Paolo's project Street Ghosts yesterday as I was driving to work I was stopped at an intersection and I looked up at the traffic light then looked above the traffic light and saw that there was a video camera pointed right at me and there are really very few places you can be in urban areas and built-up areas where you are not under surveillance of some kind and that is really what this project is about. I, I can tell you just walking through the, the, the time that we've been here 
the, the response that, that I'm getting, you know, I, I, I'm feeling is that uh, a, a sense of paranoid almost. Tell me, you've had this up for a few months now. What's the reaction that you've been getting? I think for a, a lot of people, there, there's so much different work in this exhibition that people will find something and they'll respond to it in particular. Sure. The fact of surveillance is just that. It's a fact. So the, you know, uh, I think awareness is more than anything else what we're interested in. Uh, and what people then choose to do with that is their choice, but again, it references back to the title. It's a question mark in it. Nothing to hide? With, if you think you have nothing to hide, you could very well be wrong about that. Not because you've done anything that you necessarily don't want revealed, but it's nobody else's business. You know, we have a right to privacy, and that is, is a right that shouldn't be question where you have a right to privacy, yeah, but. So you don't have to justify why you have a right to privacy. We should have the right to be left alone. Will, thanks so much. Thank you guys very much for coming. I'll be spying on you on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Stalking. Will K. Wilkins is executive director of Real Artways in Hartford. The exhibit Nothing to Hide, Art, Surveillance, and Privacy will run through June 19th. Where We Live is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. I'm Ray Hardman, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for joining us.